0: Hi everyone, it is now 5pm on this Wednesday evening in Kingston and you're listening to CFRC 101.9 FM www.cfrc.ca. Welcome to this week's segment of Today in YGK with me, your host, Alexandra Fernandez. Today in YGK brings you need-to-know news about what's going on right here in our beautiful city of Kingston. From current news, special segments, and interviews with some amazing guests, I'm sure you'll find something of interest that gets you to tune in. If you have any news to share, be sure to contact me, via email at news at So without further ado, let's get right into it. I hope you enjoy the show everyone. You're tuned into Today in YGK on CFRC 101.9 FM. Today in our virtual studio with me, I have Tommy Cook to discuss a recent article that was featured in the Queen's Gazette as to why COVID-19 vaccine passports should be reconsidered. So let's welcome Tommy to CFRC 101.9 FM. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. I'm doing well. I'm not in Kingston, but I imagine <laughs> it's just as humid there as it is here. So oh, yes, uh,
0: definitely. <laughs> it's,
1: it's great to be a part of the show. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. Um, so before we jump into it, would you actually mind introducing yourself for us, please, and just telling us a little bit about yourself, your experience, your um, education, all that stuff?
1: Absolutely. Thanks for asking. Uh, finishing up, a Shirk postdoc. So Shirk is the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's a postdoc that I uh, was awarded back in... 2018 now it seems like a very very long time ago from the pre-pandemic world and the project was to look at privacy and surveillance issues from social scientific theoretical perspectives of course Uh, the the majority of my focus since i arrived at at queen's university at the surveillance studies center to work with dr david Lyon, who's my supervisor has been location data inside of smartphones. So I've worked very carefully and very closely with people who are far more intelligent and gifted than I am in terms of being able to open up smartphones and see what's going on algorithmically speaking to mm-hmm. approach the operating system as a kind of uh, architectural system, if, if I may, that is filled with social and political biases. And so the, the timing has, has been really impeccable for doing that kind of research. Of course, it's not necessarily or obviously related to the piece that I recently co-authored, but some of the research that I did before coming to Queens, I think might be a little bit more obvious in terms of how we arrived at writing that piece. I did my PhD at York University in the joint program in communication and culture. So that's actually a joint program with Ryerson University. So while I was doing my, my very interdisciplinary PhD, I, I was still able to work with many engineers, but also people who are really gifted in software uh, critique, Mm -hmm. people that studied media and uh, infographs and moving pictures in ways that were really amenable to thinking about public safety, privacy, and surveillance, but also what it means to be a digital subject. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a little bit more about who I am. I am also an instructor with the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. I instruct a Master's of Engineering course called AI Ethics and Society, which has been an absolute Very blast. Cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Thank you so much for that great introduction. Um, so jumping into it, um, the piece that you wrote with your colleague.
1: Benjamin Muller. Yes, yes, he's a professor of political science at King's University College at, at Western University and is a Longtime mentor, former master supervisor, and of course a very close friend as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So like I said earlier in our introduction, um, it was a piece about COVID-19 vaccine passports and why we need to reconsider them. So can you give us a little bit of summary of this piece for some of our listeners who may have not had the opportunity to have a look at it yet?
1: Absolutely. I, I think what's helpful to keep in mind in trying to determine how somebody like myself and a critical security international scholar like Ben come together to talk about something like the COVID passport is to understand what it is that we tend to do from our respective intellectual traditions. Ben is an expert on border security technology, the usage of technologies by government to manage populations, particularly at border sites. So like you might think about the border crossing in, in Nogales between Mexico and the U.S. or uh, as you pass through the airport at Pearson or what have you. So Ben's always had this incredible gift for analyzing technology in terms of how governments use it. And of course, I come in through the privacy and surveillance lens. And given how central the smartphone has become, we we sort of were able to have this, this coffee conversation recently and say, you know, there's a lot of conversation about the COVID passport. Thinking back to where we were a year ago, it was quite obvious to us that this idea that Bluetooth uh, tracking would be used on smartphones to allow governments to uh, monitor our contact with one another in the name of public safety, that that conversation didn't really happen. It was a decision that was sort of made and it rolled out very quickly. And so the the origin of the piece really was us saying, it feels like we've been here before, you know, like turn to a pre-existing technology, rework it redeploy it in an unusual way to enable something, but don't do it in a way that invites public discussion. Right. And so this was a year ago that, that this kind of thing happened, but more significant, more historically, at least in recent memory, we were here back in the early 2000s in the post 9-11 environment when biometrics were decided to be rolled out in airports and at borders. And of course, with Ben's expertise being on the subject matter, um, it was really shocking to us, or to him, I should say more accurately, that there was no real public discussion. There was no debate about bringing biometrics in. And so when we see that the COVID is going to be on smartphones, we're sort of sitting here saying, "This, this is somewhere we've been before. Mm-hmm. It's problematic from a civil rights privacy perspective, data ethics, data justice perspective. So let's write about it. Let's talk about what it means to not have the public included in using very quickly accessible, highly sensitive data on devices that we carry on us every day.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. And in what ways can you like compare, you know, like these vaccines and these vaccine like confirmations to things like biometrics? Um, Like how are they sort of comparable in the way that you're sort of phrasing it?
1: they're not necessarily comparable in the sense of let's say for example a standalone iris scanner retina scanner or a fingerprint scanner at the airport but our phones do have biometric technologies in them right so the point that we were trying to make in our piece was not necessarily to compare them but more to say that you know it wasn't all that long ago less than 20 years ago that governments had turned to this new technology because it promised to enhance our mobility. It promised to verify our identity. It promised to open up the borders in a time where people were terrified to travel, Mm
0: -hmm. but wanted
1: to resume traveling. And so the parallel here is that we have these kinds of technologies with us all the time. Now, I haven't seen any evidence that biometrics are being used or biometric data would be included inside of A vaccine passport per se. However, the potential for unrelated and and very sensitive data to be included inside of a COVID passport on your phone is quite high.
0: Right. Because there
1: hasn't been much investigation into who is designing the app itself on a country-to-country basis. Right. And there hasn't been much investigation into the toolkits that are used. And that's what we refer to Uh, when we discuss application programming interfaces inside of the apps themselves.
0: Okay, okay, interesting. Thank you. Um, And, you know, in the article, and like you were saying, it said that, you know, vaccine passports and cards, you know, have been handwritten in the past, and now it's something that may be as easily accessible on our phones. Um, And I guess like a different question too, is like, does it not kind of make that a little bit more forgeable? Um, and like allow an easier way to go about getting like a fake vaccination confirmation. I know that that's kind of been like, a uh, concern for people as to how easy it could be to hmm. lie about getting a vaccine confirmation. Yeah,
1: that's, that's a really fascinating thought. I really appreciate you, you thinking about it in that way. Truthfully, I, I can't speak to that very much. I think that, you know, there's an advantage to these things being electronic in the sense that there's ways we can use, uh, Two-factor, two-step authentication that we can use encryption. We can um, we can pseudonymize certain data sets to ensure that certain actors are are not getting that information. Um, so I, and I'm sorry that I can't answer your initial question more directly, but um, mm-hmm. there, we have seen um, circumstances, uh, for example, in in Europe right now where the COVID green card that they're they're talking about rolling out and implementing right now, as a matter of fact has a, a digital form and it not it's not necessarily a smartphone app but mm-hmm. it comes with a qr code that would then allow the phone to connect to a data source that is verified and encrypted and so there are there are certain digital security technologies in place in a cloud or a server elsewhere that would that would make it i think impossible to to replicate or, or lie in, in that capacity but kind of technology and representation the one that we're dealing with um, in the article that, that we wrote recently.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm reading the, I have like the article pulled up here on the side, and it says, um, you know, at the bottom, um, you know, real debate is needed today, public criticism and deliberation about vaccine passports is overlooked and even discredited. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more to that? And um, I guess, like, are you sort of in a very, like, straightforward way of putting it. Um, like, do you just hope that, you know, like the public is more aware of like the way that the technology is being used and that like you want more public discussion about this and like more public engagement? Or
1: yes, that's precisely it. I mean, okay. you've, you've said it better than I could <laughs> possibly say it myself. I, I think there are there are a number of key organizations and, and key interest groups and key com- communities that have pers- that matter, not the perspectives and experiences coming from a white man or two white men like my colleague and I, like Dr. Benjamin Muller and I. There are people who are caught in surveillance dragnets because of algorithmic bias and error. There are people who are failed to be identified accurately by facial recognition algorithms that exist in public CCTV networks in the U.S., for example. Right. There are people who are stopped at the airport because of their ethnicity or their, their religious identification. These are not problems that privileged populations deal with very often. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear the perspective of somebody, not necessarily who has been in trouble through these processes, who's been caught in these, these kinds of nets of implications, but at least to be able to shed some light on where these systems don't work. Because if they do end up on our smartphones and the smartphones are designed privately, unless there is complete transparency over how that app is designed and what specific methods, functions, and algorithms it uses to pull data into the phone without collecting other sensor data, without amalgamating other personal information, it's hard for us to know how disenfranchised and marginalized communities may or may not be adversely affected by these kinds of technologies and that's what we mean by that we need to have a conversation with people who tend not to be included in these debates in the first place. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah and that's a really good point point. and my question was going to be you know because of um, like why were biometrics and surveillance so questioned in the early 2000s especially you know after it kind of like increased after 9-11 and stuff and why were people very scared and paranoid of technology like this and do you think that this fear is very much still present in a majority of people or not.
1: I, I'm, I can't speak to the fear as much as I can the surrounded um, critical study of biometric technologies when they were first being implemented, recognized very, very quickly and very immediately that those technologies didn't work as advertised. I think one of the most famous examples or infamous examples, if I may, mm-hmm. was showcased by by my colleague and friend, Dr. Muller, in the Avatar program that was unrolled in Nogales along the Mexico-US border. So if you can imagine something like an ATM, a, a cash or debit withdrawal machine mm-hmm. with a, a large screen on it that, that portrayed a three-dimensional, three-dimensional virtual border guard. And that border guard would appear as you approach the border. So imagine you're not talking to a physical real uh, corporeal security guard, you're talking to a kiosk, and the virtual face that you see is designed to look like you. It tries to match your gender, it tries to match the shape of your eyes to match your ethnicity. And it asks you a series of questions to determine whether or not you are being truthful about who you are. And that Ava- avatar system used a number of biometric technologies that watched for dilation in your pupils or a watch for the flaring of the nostrils, or a watch for beads of sweat on the forehead. Kind of like I am right now, not because of the intensity of the interview, but by the fact that my my air conditioning is, is dead. But the, the the point that I'm trying to make here is it's not merely a facetious one. It's, it's quite deliberate in the sense that the way in which these different biometric technologies were organized in Avatar, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. The way that the designers presupposed that by looking at changes in the body, the biological complexion or expression of a subject in front of the machine, would somehow reveal the truth about that person that a human couldn't figure out on their own. The system failed spectacularly. The question came at the time for these thinkers like Ben Muller, what do biometrics actually achieve? And there was lots of evidence from critical thinkers and surveillance studies and and critical security studies and international political sociology to suggest that these systems don't work the way people think they do. But that discussion was ignored. And this is why it's really important today to get people who tend not to be included in these conversations right into the heart of the debate about what technology supposedly can and cannot do.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. That's a really good point. And definitely a perspective that even, you know, I myself haven't, like, didn't even really consider that we should, um, that there is a lot more to it than just like your average person kind of thing, just to, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I- again, I- I- I've already mentioned this point, but I think it's an important one to reiterate. It's easy for me to travel in the pre-pandemic world, and it'll probably be easy for me to travel in the post-pandemic world. I am a white man and my privilege allows me to work through these surveillances because they tend by people like myself. The people who tend to be most inaccurately identified by facial recognition, for example, are Black women. What will the world, the post-pandemic world, look like when facial algorithm, facial recognition algorithms are implemented into CCTV systems, or potentially even into our smartphones, as a identity verification process, as a as a mandatory checkpoint that hasn't been discussed, right? The f- the fact that these systems have been out existing in in society in public for a few years now, and it's only now that we're starting to have conversations about their their real immediate Im- implications is really significant to me. There's a huge delay in when these debates are happening. Mm -hmm. Katherine Stinson, who is a remarkable professor at Queen's University, has done research on this directly. And I think she'd be a wonderful person to to talk to if this too can shed more light on it. But because there is a significant delay in, in society discovering that these systems often end up hurting minorities, disenfranchised, marginalized populations, I think it's incumbent upon us as researchers in this community, as students at Queens, to ask these hard questions, to see Mm -hmm. if we can push Trudeau and the provincial governments around us to sit down, slow down, and have a conversation about not what they think is going to work, but what they're missing.
0: Very well put. Yeah, definitely. Um, And that was like, such an interesting like, perspective to hear and a very interesting topic as well to learn more about. So thank you so much for that. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add just before we end off?
1: No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and, and talk to you on this, this amazing radio station about this. Thanks very much for having me. You know, it's, uh, it's been a tough year for everybody for a lot of different reasons in this, this now this pandemic year. I look forward to us all being able to resume um, whatever kind of normal way of life we had. But I don't think it's it's going to happen. I think that we are going to approach this new post-pandemic world and, and the kind of normalcy that we will socialize into invariably will be different than what it was before. I think by paying attention to technological change, by paying attention to the different third parties, different networks of actors that have stakes in wanting data and wanting extra verification to be placed on your smartphone. Paying attention to those kinds of things are going to signal for us very clearly what the new normal is going to look like. And I'm very grateful to be part of this research community because we happen to be pretty good here at Queens in terms of figuring out what those slippery slopes are. So thanks Mm -hmm. again for having me. I really appreciate this.
0: Yes, of course. My absolute pleasure, Tommy. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Today in YGK, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the
1: Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.